0: Now, Maimonides is a mystery in many ways because everyone seems to love him. We name hospitals after him, we name schools after him, and across the spectrum of Jewish religious and communal organizations he seems to be popular, whether we're talking about Haredi and Hasidic and ultra-Orthodox, modern Orthodox, whether we're talking about Reform, <laughs> conservative, Reconstructionists, Everyone, you name it, they find themselves in Maimonides in some way. The uh, early <laughs> academics who began to study Judaism in the academic environment in Germany in the Wissenschaft des Judentums, when they wanted to find an example of the kind of Jew they thought would make a good case for uh, the, the emancipation of Jews, they, they turned to Maimonides. Maimonides is seen as an example of medieval Jewish diplomacy. He was even, among the many, many, many things he did, an important physician. And he was a prolific writer, wrote many, many books, both in the realm of Jewish law as well as the realm of Jewish philosophy, and he wrote extensive medical texts, some of which are still just being published um, now. I was at the American Academy of Religion Conference in San Diego in November, and uh, there is a a, a publishing series that's being done by Brigham Young University, I'm I'm not entirely sure why, but Brigham Young University is publishing a whole series of Maimonides' uh, medical books. He had a series of medical aphorisms, as well as short texts that he wrote um, things on asthma or on headaches, and so I went over to the Brigham Young University um, press table and they had Whole display of these wonderful books of Maimonides' medical writings. They were written in uh, in Arabic, and they're published in Arabic with an English translation. Um, very scientifically done. They look great, and they were they were displaying their newest volumes. And in the middle, with a big sign advertising it, was Maimonides' book on hemorrhoids. <laughs> so this was a man who really knew an awful lot about an awful lot. But if you were to go back into the 12th and 13th centuries in particular, it would seem like nobody liked Maimonides. And so what I want to talk about today, I'm I'm not, I'm not actually looking to judge Maimonides, I'm simply curious about what is this historical phenomenon of Maimonides and the reactions to Maimonides. Because he evoked tremendous, tremendous controversy in various points in the Middle Ages. So, Maimonides was born in in Cordoba in 1135, and when he grew up there he lived the life of an important scholar son from a trading family. His his younger brother, in fact, was the one who was the real breadwinner for the family and supported Maimonides as he pursued his studies uh, in both in traditional Jewish yeshiva learning as well as in his scientific and medical training. And um, Maimonides' younger brother, in fact, was tragically lost at sea um, with most of the family's fortune when uh, his, storm, his boat was overtaken in a storm. And um, after that, Maimonides actually says very candidly that, that he went into a deep depression for about a year, and when he emerged from that, he began to earn his living as a physician. But when the Almoravids came to Spain, they brought a very radical and very intolerant form of Islam to Spain, and as a result, uh, Maimonides and his family had to flee. Um, They fled to North Africa, first to Fez, and then ended up moving east into Cairo, and there Maimonides became the physician um, to the sultan, or vizier, um, in Cairo, and was a very, very important man, both in the uh, political House of the Sultan, and in the Jewish community. His books were read widely, um, and of course, back in the day before the printing press, when people have to copy things out by hand, it was expensive, but it happened very quickly with his work. And from all over the world, Jews would ask him questions, and Maimonides would write these to vote. He would write responsa addressing any number of social and halachic or Jewish legal questions that would be directed towards him. But as some of his work became very popular, it also became very controversial. And one of the first books of his that was particularly controversial was the first book that he wrote in Hebrew called the Mishneh Torah, which means sort of second to the Torah. It was a book about Jewish law, and it was a legal code. Um, Law codes were important and necessary because the Talmud, as a legal source, is a mess. The Talmud says so many things. It's an enormous, enormous text uh, that encompasses many, many volumes. So if you're talking about a handwritten series of manuscripts, nobody could afford to own a Talmud in their house, and it doesn't work really effectively as a text you can refer to to find an answer to something. If Rosh Hashanah falls on a Friday night, do you sh- light the the Rosh the candles? or say the blessing for Rosh Hashanah before you say the blessing for the Sabbath? What do you do if you forget that question? It's not easy to open up the Talmud and just quickly look up the answer. So law codes were important in this respect. Al-Fassi had an important law code, but Maimonides... He wrote his own law code, and the idea was that it would be a quick, easy reference where a person could find the halachic answer to their halachic question. In fact, he says in the introduction, he says uh, that he wrote this book, the Mishneh Torah, and he says, I have entitled it, this work, Mishneh Torah, for the reason that a person who first reads the Torah and then reads this work will know from it all of the oral law, and there will be no need to read any other written book between them." (laughs) This was actually outrageous in its day. There were those who said, Maimonides, we don't need a bunch of Jewish people having easy access to the law, they should have to come talk to us. I don't think they said it in exactly those words, but in in essence, he was short-circuiting a system of power in some medieval rabbinic communities that some medieval rabbis were very uncomfortable with. And he was also saying, it's not that important for every Jew to study Talmud. It's just important that they know how to find the answers to the questions that they're looking for. Maimonides pointed out, most people aren't going to be able to sit around and study Talmud. Talmud takes instruction. Talmud requires a person to study Aramaic. People know some Hebrew from reading the Torah, from reading, from reciting their prayers, but people don't know Aramaic, and this is a necessary thing for the community. It was a bold move. It was a radical move, and it was one that evoked a lot of discomfort around Maimonides' efforts. So this is one kind of tragi- of, of controversy um, that Maimonides was involved in. He was spreading access to halakha, which some people celebrated, and other people resisted. But philosophy was the other and perhaps greater controversy. This was the more explosive area of his, of his thought. Now, philosophy had, in terms of Greek wisdom, been introduced into Jewish culture since the time of Sa'aja Gaon in the ninth century. And the ideas that they grappled with were ones that were primarily exposed to Jews living in Muslim lands. So at around the year 900, 90% of Jews lived in Muslim territory. They um, were fairly conversant in Arabic, in classical written Arabic. And these texts that translated Arabic, Greek philosophy for Jews, they were translated into Arabic. And not only Jews, but also Muslims were um, very important scholars of Greek philosophy. Greek actually didn't enter European um, or even Jewish circles directly from Greek. It came through Arabic. And in fact, as Greek philosophy spread to Latin Christian Europe, it did so by means of Jewish translators who translated these texts from Arabic into Latinate languages within the orbit of Jewish societies in the Muslim world, there were some who were not particularly interested in philosophy, but there were not that many who were bothered by it enormously. There were people who were, I guess you could say from the things they wrote about it, at times irritated by it. But it it wasn't really tremendously explosive in that environment. But as these texts begin to be translated into Latinate languages, and as they're translated into Hebrew, there we start to find the spread of controversy and some very, very difficult tensions develop in Jewish communities in the Middle Ages. So what's the problem? What is it that begins to bother people? Um, The question is really about where knowledge comes from. Where is the truth that is important both for understanding the world and for understanding the meaning of Judaism. Where does that truth come from? And the philosophical claim developed both by Jewish philosophers and Muslim philosophers, they read their work together and they actually, um, there was a lot of intellectual contact between Jewish and Muslim philosophers. The idea was that the human mind can use logic to derive truths and that these forms of truth are the true meaning of how to understand even things in traditional texts. So it leads to a question of how do you understand the Torah or other aspects of the Jewish tradition, say in rabbinic literature, in the Talmud or in Midrash, when it appears to contradict logic? And one of the strategies for that is to say when it would appear that the tradition is at odds with logic, it must mean that the tradition is a symbol or an allegory. And therefore, the text is probably making a claim about the real logical truth, but doing it in symbolic language. And this led to, in particular, the question of anthropomorphism. How does one understand the passages in the Torah or the many, many passages In the Talmud and the Midrash that talk about God in human form. And the philosophers would say this is a serious problem. Because for Aristotle, the most important of the Greek philosophers, um, that was the kind of a guide for medieval Jewish and Muslim philosophers. In fact, they're often just referred to as Aristotelians because they follow the school of Aristotle. He argues that God must be unlimited, he must be somehow without any boundaries on his power, and physical matter is far too limited in order for that to encompass God. Therefore, God must have no body whatsoever. They also argued that God must, in fact, be incomprehensible, because the human mind is finite, and God is infinite. and Therefore, God is unknowable, and he is without a body of any kind, And all comments to that effect, all references to God in human form in any way, these must be symbolic. These must be allegories that are intended to imply indirectly the truths that are spoken very directly by philosophy. Now, this leads one to wonder, what's the purpose, then, of religious discourse. What's the purpose of the Torah and the Talmud and the Midrash when they talk about God? Why are they speaking about God so indirectly? And many Muslim philosophers stated quite outright. Some Jewish philosophers did. Maimonides only kind of hinted at this. But ultimately what they said is that religion is for the masses. Religion is for the average person who can't be a true philosopher. Religion is a kind of philosophy for dummies, if you will. And that it's there because the average person can't really study Aristotle and understand it, and that's where the truth can be achieved directly. (laughs) And that the purpose of religion is to give people an indirect means of getting at the truth, but that's because of their intellectual limitations. Whereas people who really understand philosophy, they can get at that truth more directly and more precisely. What's the purpose, then, of the practice of commandments? And Maimonides claims in a number of places, he says, well, commandments are important because they reinforce true opinions in people's minds, that commandments are there to help support the ideas that are necessary for the true belief in God. And this was a very, uh, very kind of intellectualized and um, a very idea-based form of religion, and a very idea-based form of Judaism. And some of his critics would say, the purpose of prayer, the purpose of mitzvot, the purpose of traditions, the purpose of ethical behavior is true opinions about the nature of God and the world. They they were very uncomfortable with this. And so Maimonides knew that this was something people struggled with. Uh, He himself had struggled with it. So he wrote a text in Arabic, And that text was called The Guide for the Perplexed. Um, For people who were perplexed because they were trying to reconcile rational truth with traditional Jewish truth. And he hoped this text would help them. And he says at the beginning, if you have not studied philosophy, please put this book down. It's not for you. You don't have the perplexity that I'm trying to address. What this text is designed to do is to help people who are not philosophers or who are philosophers and are not able to reconcile philosophy and Judaism. This text is there to help people through that question. So now, of course, it turns out people did read the book anyway. Uh, He was an important rabbi and people were curious to see what he said. And there was one passage in particular that really got a lot of people angry. So, I want to describe this passage. It's towards the end of the Guide of the Perplexed, in which he sort of sums up for his reader the um, different kinds of people in the world and the different kinds of Jews and their relationship to God as a result of their knowledge of philosophy. He says that God is like a king who's in his palace, and surrounding his palace is a city, and there are people who are all over. There are people who are outside the city, there are people who are inside the city, people who are inside the vestibules of the palace, and then people who are inside the palace itself in the chamber with the king. And he sort of goes on to explain the different classes of people in the world. He said, the people who are outside the city, these are people who have neither philosophical knowledge, nor do they have any even traditional religious knowledge. And these people, he says, they're, they're hopeless. He even makes the argument that they're not really human. Um, he, says, uh, he says, "To my mind, they do not have the rank of men, but have among them uh, the beings that have among them the rank lower than the rank of man, but higher than the rank of apes, for they have the external shape of a human and a faculty of discernment that is superior to that of apes. Now, already, people got very irritated by this. They said, your, your, your definition of humanity is based on how much philosophy they've learned. But that, they were just getting warmed up because, in fact, it gets, more, uh, it, it, gets, it gets more controversial after that. The second class of people are those who are walking in the wrong direction. And he says, these are people who have some knowledge, but they got it wrong. So the more they pursue their false knowledge, the further they get away from the king's palace. So they would really just be better to stop studying anything rather than to continue forward in error. The third class, this is the one that actually made people's eyes pop out of their heads. Here's what he said about the third class of people. He said, those who seek to reach the ruler and his palace and enter it but never see the ruler's palace are the multitude of the adherents of the law. And then he goes on, in case that wasn't obvious, he says, I refer to the ignoramuses who observe the commandments. So in his view, a little better than people walking in the wrong direction are people who are looking for the palace and can't find it because their GPS is broken. Um, Wow, this is two nights in a row now that I've made some sort of GPS reference. Can you tell that I I have a terrible sense of direction and I'm constantly, I can't get anywhere without a GPS. They can't find the palace. And who are those people? Those are Jews who observe Jewish law, but they're not philosophers. The ignoramuses who observe the commandments. So now for many rabbis who read this, this made them irate because of the way he classed different people. He then, at a higher level than that, refers to the more sophisticated people who observe the law with a knowledge of traditional Judaism. This would be the rabbis. So they're above the rank of the people who can't find the palace, but they're not of the rank of the people who get to go inside. They can find the palace, but they just keep walking around outside in his parable. So that's the rabbis. So first you have the ignoramuses who follow the law, they can't find the palace. You have the rabbis who study traditional Jewish texts in depth. They can find the palace, but they lost the key. And then the people who really get all the way inside, these are the people who know traditional Judaism and know philosophy. They're the ones who can get true access to the divine, and even among them he gives them different ranks. So this was an explosive comment in its day, and it was indicative of something about Maimonides' work more generally, in that he gave precedence to ideas, in particular to philosophical ideas, and regarded Judaism as a means to getting at those ideas. And that, in fact, the quality and level of a person's Judaism was not the basis of the the things they did, the kind of person they were, the the life that they led, it was very contingent upon how much truth they knew, and that truth was embodied in Aristotelian philosophy. And in fact, it makes one wonder, why wasn't Aristotelian philosophy just written into the Talmud? And Maimonides has an answer for that as well. He said that Aristotelian philosophy was part of Judaism back in the days of the Prophets and that, in fact, the philosophers really co-opted these ideas from ancient Israelites, but that it had been lost over the course of Jewish history. It was lost in the time of the rabbis, or it was concealed, and that the rabbis knew much of this knowledge, the rabbis of the Talmud, but they concealed it from the masses because they thought it would con- confuse them, and that over time since the Talmud, many people have lost this knowledge. And now it's necessary for Jews to actually refer to Greek philosophical texts in order to retrieve the true doctrine of the Talmud, passed to them from the prophets, but lost and stolen by the Greeks and preserved by them. It's a strange genealogy for Jewish thought. This was not a persuasive argument uh, for many of the rabbis who opposed Maimonides and um, were irritated with him. And the reason why is because they felt like he was saying that they're missing the whole point. They felt like he was saying, without the knowledge of philosophy, Judaism is largely meaningless. It's walking in the right direction, but it doesn't know where it's going. That kind of reaction would only get worse if Maimonides' work, The Guide of the Perplexed, were made available in Hebrew. And in his lifetime, um, the Ibn Tabon family in Spain was famous for its translation of all kinds of Arabic texts into Hebrew, and uh, Shmuel Ibn Tabon wanted to translate The Guide of the Perplexed into Hebrew, and he wrote to Maimonides, and he asked him for his advice, and Maimonides said, well, you know, like try not to be too literal. what else can I say? And then Ibn Tibbon said, I'd like to come speak to you, I'd like to show you my translation that I'm working on and get your advice. And this document has been found, it's Maimonides' response to Ibn Tibbon, who's translating the Guide of the Perplexed, and translating it so that it can be read in Hebrew rather than Arabic, which means that it would be read in places, not just in Spain, where still many Jews read Arabic, but in parts of the Franco-German Ashkenazi Jewish world, especially in southern France. And I think Maimonides must have known that this was going to set off a firestorm. He didn't tell Ibn Tibbon not to do the translation, but he also doesn't agree to meet with him. And he writes this letter that is puzzling. Um, It's almost a kind of melodramatic response to Ibn Tabon, in which he says, in essence, that he's too busy. Um, In fact, it's an amazing insight into Maimonides' life. Now, this was not private correspondence. Letters like this were public documents. So I want to read you a little bit of this letter in which he describes his life and describes the reason why Ibn Tabon, he says, really shouldn't come. He really shouldn't make the voyage, he says. Uh, it would be better for him to stay at home. And he says, what advantage would you have in coming here except that you would see me but for a few moments? If you want to have a private audience with me and discuss matters of wisdom, don't even hope for one hour during the day or night. I will write to you my daily schedule. I live in Fostad and the Sultan lives in Cairo, a distance of some 4,000 cubits. It's about, I think, a mile and a half. My duties to the sultan are very heavy. I must see him every morning to check on his health. If one day he doesn't feel well, or one of the princes or the women of his harem doesn't feel well, I cannot leave Cairo that day. If, often happens that if as it often happens, there's an officer or two who needs me, and I have to attend to healing them all day, therefore, as a rule, I'm in Cairo early every day, and even if nothing unusual happens, by the time I come back to Fostad, half the day is gone. Under no circumstances do I come home earlier, and I am ravenously hungry by then. There is no kosher um, cafeteria, I think, in Costa When I come home, my foyer is always full of people, Jews and non-Jews, important people and not, judges and policemen, people who love me and people who hate me, a mixture of people, all of whom have been waiting for me to come home. I get off of my donkey, wash my hands, and go out into the hall to see them. I apologize and ask that they should be kind enough to give me a few moments to eat. This is the only meal I take in 24 hours. Then I go out to heal them, write them prescriptions and instructions for treating their problems. Patients go in and out until nightfall, and sometimes, I swear to you by the Torah, It is two hours in the night before they are all gone. I talk to them and prescribe for them even while lying down on my back from exhaustion. And when the night begins, I am so weak I cannot even talk anymore. Because of all this, no Jew can come and speak with me in wisdom or have a private audience with me because I have no time. Except on Shabbat. And he describes his Shabbat and its virtually equally as busy, minus the prescriptions. Therefore he says, don't come see me. What a letter! I mean, this guy's busy, I I admit he's busy, though I will notice he didn't wash any dishes, so like, how busy really was he? Um, But he is a man in demand. You'll notice that this letter in which he describes himself Maimonides is treating the illnesses of many different people, important and unimportant. So he's generous. He's he's giving himself to his community. That people who are powerful come to see him. People who even don't like him come to see him. You also see his piety. You see his meticulous observance of the law because that's already being called into question even in Maimonides' day. This is later in his career where people claim that young men in Spain and in France study philosophy and they stop observing the commandments. Maimonides is clearly implying about himself here that this is not who he is. And you see that Maimonides is a person who's valued both by political authorities and by his community. It's as though he's saying, what people say about me isn't true, but he's also saying that he doesn't want to be too closely associated with this translation project. The translation of the Guide of the Perplexed is something about which he seems to have an ambivalent attitude. He doesn't wish to stop it, but he also doesn't wish to be too closely associated with it. If it happens, let the chips fall where they may. And so it is translated, and it creates an enormous controversy, including after his death. Many, many letters were published in which many rabbis said that this book should not be studied, that this book should not be read. They argued that young people should not study this book, in fact, there were even those, uh, the southern French rabbis in particular, who said that many of Maimonides' opinions were completely wrong. Mm. The rabat of he argued with regard to Maimonides' claim that it is necessary that every Jew, philosopher or not, believe that God has no body. He said that the belief in the incorporeality, in the non Physicality of God was one of the basic principles of faith. Maimonides famously authored the 13 principles of faith, And this was one of them: not only that there's a God, but that that God has no body. And the Rabbad famously said, "Many and greater than he have believed in such a doctrine." That believing in the anthropomorphism of God was not, he regarded, as according to the Rabbahd, this was not heresy. This didn't damage Judaism. And among the controversies, as people were deciding whether or not Maimonides, was he a heretic or was he the most important authority of his day, there were those who said he should be turned over to the Gentile authorities. He should be turned over to Christian authorities in Paris, and his work should be, essentially accused of heresy, and his books should be burned. And there were rabbis in southern France who in fact did burn his books, and accuse him of heresy, and asked that the secular, or that the Christian authorities help them ban Maimonides' work from their territory. And this may have been responsible for setting in motion an inquiry into Jewish literature that then led in 1242 to the burning of the Talmud, of many, many cartloads of Talmuds in downtown Paris. Um, after that, there was a sobering moment in the history of the Maimonidean controversy and there, there were some of the French rabbis, uh, according to uh, the, the, the legend that's told, uh, probably not a legend, it's actually a real story, it seems that they went to Maimonides' grave in Tiberias and formally apologized to him. Um, not necessarily that they agreed with everything he said, but that they thought that the controversies that had been created around him were damaging to the Jewish people and they took responsibility for that. As time went on, um, Moses ben Nachman or Nachmanides was important in trying to broker some sort of resolution to this conflict. And they decided that the approach to Maimonides' work should be that no one should read the Guide of the Perplexed until they are at least 25 years old, have studied, Judaism, and they've studied the Torah and the Talmud, they understand enough about the the traditional laws as well as the traditional ideas of Judaism, and then if they wish, they can study the guide of the perplexed. And that arrangement seems to have quelled most of the violent parts of the controversy. What's interesting about the afterlife of Maimonides' works is that in every generation, people seem to find the elements of Maimonides that are important to them because he was so able to be radical in so many ways at once, they ignore the parts that aren't important to them. Um, in virtually every Orthodox yeshiva, um, I have a friend who, who studies Maimonides in Orthodoxy, and he said, virtually nowhere does anyone read Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. In fact, it's not even on the shelves in many yeshivas. And in fact, Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed, it's a text that many people have heard of, but not many really study. It's not one of the texts of Maimonides, though it was very important to him, that became important to subsequent history. And in different generations, people are able to find in Maimonides different things. So Maimonides presents a view of Judaism that's very different from, say, Kabbalah. But a legend told about Maimonides in the 13th and 14th centuries was that on his deathbed, Maimonides had in fact disavowed philosophy and embraced Kabbalah, which I think says a lot. It's not clear that Maimonides ever did any such thing, except that his his son became a kind of Sufi Jew. His son did not continue in the the path of philosophy. But it was clear that by then, uh, by the, the early 1300s, people wanted to believe that Maimonides was part of their vision of Judaism. And in fact, Maimonides was so many things at once that indeed he was part of their vision of Judaism. And so this is perhaps the greatest irony of Maimonides after the controversies surrounding the publications of his works, is that everyone finds themselves in him, which is ironic, but perhaps it's a result of the fact that all of us are radicals at heart as well. Thank you.
1: fascinating. If anybody would like to line up, we'll just take questions for 10 minutes and then we'll adjourn to the owning Shabbat. If anybody wants to ask a question, please go over to this mic. I'm going to begin with, uh, if you don't mind, with the first question. I actually have a few, but I'm going to try to ask one. Um, Can you draw a line from Maimonides to Spinoza to Mordechai Kaplan? So that, in other words, you know, in, in other words, and in, 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 so I'll give, I'll give you both questions. You can choose whichever one. Sure. The, the other one is, is um, you know, my mom, Rambam, said there are two paths to truth, right? One is, I mean, among the many things he said, right? One is, um, you, you know, you kind of follow halakha and you're a pious person, and the other one is you follow philosophy. Um, Was the the traditional path a kind of a cover-your-tush strategy um, that he knew to have any bona fide in the community in which he lived, in the Jewish community, he had to allow, even if he denigrated that kind of path in the guide, that that he needed to say, well, you know, philosophy is
0: kosher because you can also find it in non-philosophy. So those are my two questions. Uh, People have argued that essentially Maimonides was um, being disingenuous in saying that it was necessary to study revealed Judaism if you can also study philosophy uh, more directly. Um, It's clear from the guide that simply studying studying tradition, Judaism, is an inferior path to truth. And it is not at the same level as the study of philosophy. Um, Why exactly the two have to be followed in quite the way he describes? So why it's necessary to recite all of the traditional prayers every day, which he argues a person absolutely must do. Why they have to put on their tefillin every day, he argues a person absolutely must do this. It's not entirely clear philosophically why that would be necessary. And some of his colleagues in the Muslim philosophical context really thought that that was only for people who didn't study philosophy. Um, So was this just a cover? It's, It's unclear, and I think this is one of the mysteries of Maimonides. He remained devoutly traditional, even in ways that he didn't have to be. So he argued that it's a necessary belief, one of the 13 principles of faith, it was necessary to believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead at the time of redemption. And it wasn't clear why he felt that that had to be the case. So it's not always obvious why Maimonides always held those two paths, the paths of tradition and the path of philosophical knowledge, as both being necessary. Um, So it's possible he was covering his tush. But it's also possible he was thinking something else, and he doesn't quite tell us. With regard to Spinoza uh, and Kaplan, drawing a line to them, I think they both draw a line from themselves to to Maimonides. And in fact, many, many important thinkers in Jewish history have seen themselves in Maimonides. For Spinoza, he sees Maimonides, and he had problems with Maimonides. Spinoza liked the idea that God and the universe were very, very connected to one another, the idea of pantheism. Spinoza wasn't quite uh, an Aristotelian. But Spinoza's philosophical radicalism found its its roots as he saw it in in Maimonides. He thought Maimonides was very important. Uh, Moses Mendelssohn said that he had a hunch in his back and he acquired it by being bent over Maimonides books for so many years. Um, And Kaplan as well. Um, Kaplan, I think, was more like the Maimonides of the Mishneh Torah in that he understood what it was that Jews needed to have a viable sense of Judaism and was willing to think creatively to make that accessible to people which in a sense was exactly what Maimonides was doing in a way that um, threatened the authority of rabbinic structures of his day. So in that sense they are, they are similar. Um, and they're not the only ones who see Maimonides as, as their predecessor everyone sees Maimonides as their predecessor because Maimonides Maimonides was so able and did so many things, um, made so many people angry and inspired so many people simultaneously. Jack, go to the
1: mic please. Thank you. Can you give us an example of a question, a philosophical question that Maimonides would be asked to explain?
0: Yes, they would ask him to explain how can we use rational knowledge to know that there, is, that, that there is a God and that God has no body, right? People would wonder, does God have a physical form? How does one understand God? And he used an Aristotelian argument. Um, essentially, he said that the, we look around the universe and see that um, the spheres of the heavens rotate person can see the sun and the moon and the stars um, rotating in the heavens, and that this rotation has to have a cause. Um, And this is an argument from Aristotle. And anything that moves has to be moved by something else. He says nothing can go from potentially moving to actually moving without being moved by something. And he says physical bodies are all moved by something. So the cause of motion in the universe has to have no physical body. It has to be the unmoved mover, is what it was referred to as. This was the the unmoved or unphysical cause of motion. And And in the Aristotelian philosophical system, they actually say that the way that God causes the heavens to rotate is by being perfect and infinite, And the heavens, when they contemplate God, they imagine that the spheres of the heavens all have minds, and that they think. That when they contemplate God, they realize God's perfection and wish to imitate it. And the best way they can imitate God's perfection is by moving in a circular motion, the most perfect of all motions. And that this is how God causes the world to exist. (laughs) This is how God causes the heavens to go around, by being perfect being lovable, and therefore the heavens, the spheres of the heavens, out of their love for God, imitate God with a circular motion. God is therefore perfect and has no body. This is is an Aristotelian philosophical argument. Um, But again, it raises serious questions. How how then does one um, reconcile that with a God in the Bible who, who, who plants a garden in Eden and puts Adam and Eve in there with a tree and a snake and he, he talks to prophets and he intervenes in history and takes particular interests in people he changes his mind he waxes angry um, these sorts of questions troubled many and he said they're symbols so there is a philosophical question with a Jewish ramification
2: in the guide to the perplexed Maimonides talks a lot about you're not going to get it. You're just not you know unless you really know your um, Torah and your Talmud and your philosophy. You're not going to get it, and maybe you'll only get the names of the chapters, and maybe and it, you're really not going to understand it. It's almost it's almost kabbalistic in the sense that he sort of hints that there's other layers of it, and you're not understanding it. Has this been an important in terms of how people have interpreted it, uh, because it, it's not a very accessible text, at least you know from my perspective, it's not, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's not being read by a lot of people, it, it isn't that accessible of a text, so has that been a big sort of part, because you can almost interpret it any way you want, you can almost
0: pull anything out of it you want. Yeah, you can get many things from the Guide of the Perplex. Um, he, he doesn't write the text in order, and he does that on purpose. He says, I'll give you a hint over here, and somewhere else I'll give you another hint, and you have to figure out what I mean by that. And so this strategy of writing, in the one case, it might be that he was hiding his true intention, right? Perhaps he was, it was a cover for the, his even more radical reinterpretation of Jewish law. Or perhaps it means something else. He leaves this somewhat vague. So he, he'll hint at what his true meaning is, but then will sometimes not connect the dots. Just put out multiple hints, expect the reader to connect the dots. So that's one way in which he says his, his true meaning is somewhat concealed. The other thing, though, that he does is he says when it comes to the question of God, there are issues that are completely, inherently incomprehensible to the human mind. Part of the divine perfection is infinity. And human minds are finite, so they can't understand God. That trying to look at God is like seeing flashes of lightning at night. And you'll see the flash and you'll know where there was some light, but you can never look at the the bolt of lightning and, and hold it in your gaze. So this is another way in which he says God is so incomprehensible, we can't say anything about what God is. All we can say is what God is not. This is his, they call it the via negativa. His negative approach to God is that instead of making positive statements that God is loving God, is kind. instead it's, it's negative statements, that, that God is not limited. Um, God does not have a body. These, these sort of um, ways of th- saying things that are about what God does not have, is not, does not do. And that at least... He says doesn't involve the error of making positive assertions about God when we can't really know what God is we just know what God is not Thank you very much.